Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 6. Older European civilization, what we call Christendom, was, I'm, I'm just trying to use the vine metaphor, to keep the vine metaphor in, in John 15 alive as we go through some of the things we'll be talking about today. So we could say that the older European civilization, what we call Christendom, was the fruit of a vine whose rootstock was Greco-Roman and whose fruit-bearing branches were Judeo-Christian. And we could say that modernity, I'm again painting with a broad brush here, but we could say again that modernity began with the Renaissance, during which time enthusiasm for the latent Greco-Roman aspects of European civilization was revived. The Enlightenment was a more systematic continuation of this process, namely the secularization of Christian moral and epistemological achievements. Far from uprooting the old vine, the Enlightenment took a cutting and stuck it in the moist soil of egalitarianism. This is purple prose. You'll forget me, forgive me for doing this, but it's a way of keeping it's a way of keeping it uh, in our mind. Far from uprooting the old vine, the Enlightenment took a cutting and stuck it into the moist soil of egalitarianism, watering it from time to time according to Thomas Jefferson's formula, with the blood of tyrants and patriots. Like the vast majority of its forerunners in biblical and then in quote Western history. It was not the lamb slain since the foundation of the world for which the Enlightenment reserved its moral concern. Rather, it identified with the lamb slain by its immediate historical predecessors, namely the downtrodden, a moral focus that soon enough shifted to a concern for either, quote, the people or, quote, the individual. Now, I want you to diagram this in your minds. The concern was for the downtrodden. Where does that concern come from? It comes from the biblical tradition. There's not, a, not no doubt about it. It was used against the biblical tradition in order to throw it off, and there's no doubt that the biblical tradition that it was, that, that it was used against was, a, was one which had carried out the work of caring for the downtrodden very poorly. So we have to admit that. Nevertheless, the idea was to champion the downtrodden. Before too long, that concern moved generally into two areas. The concern for the people. People here meant all the non-aristocrats, the people who had gotten the short end of things, or a concern for the individual. And I've said, as I said in earlier sessions, the individual is simply the Enlightenment's way of being concerned about the victim. The individual is the one who's not in the crowd, and quintessentially the one who's not in the crowd is the victim of the crowd. So there's a... Well, I, went, I tried to go into this in some length in some of our earlier sessions, and I won't get into it here. All I want to point out here is that when you see the concern not... When you see the Enlightenment becoming morally concerned, not for the lamb slain since the foundation of the world, which would have, which would have uh, 
kept the system open and, uh, and, and kept it ever alert to its own victimization, to its own ideology, you see. But instead of that, it became concerned for the downtrodden, and from that came the two streams, so to speak, the concern for the people and the concern for the individual. And what these two streams became, the concern for the people and the concern for the individual, what these two streams became were the two great streams of modern classical liberal concern. One was socialist, communist, Marxist, the people, and the other was capitalist, uh, classical liberal concern for the individual capitalist, etc. So what you have here is a, is a, is a diagram of modern liberalism. Understand, I have to emphasize it. When I say liberalism, I'm not talking about American political categories because the, uh, Newt Gingrich is a classical liberal in terms of this thing I'm talking about. That's the point. The point is you have these two systems going out and one of them collapses 20 years before the other one and the other one thinks it's a, it, it won. You see. Both of them are enlightenment projects and both of them are falling apart. That's the point I want to make to, today. And so recently, Louis Dupree wrote a book entitled Passage to Modernity. And in there, he speaks of modernity as the breakdown, quote, of an ontological synthesis. And Werner Danhauser reviewed his book. Danhauser is a political scientist at Michigan State. And in his review, he said the following. Modernity accelerates. It celebrates many triumphs in speech and deed, but by most accounts, it heads into a spiritual desert that is labeled the death of God by Nietzsche. Dupree's more restrained language makes repeated use of the term fragmentation. And I want to come back to that. Humanity seems to have lost its moorings and bearings. Many things can be said of modern man, but not that he is either happy or good, end quote. Okay, what is modernity? This, what I want to say is the Enlightenment is collapsing. What we think of as modernity is collapsing. It, you know, the, the intellectuals for the last uh, 25 years have been, trying to, have been trying to figure out some way to talk about, because we've been talking about the modern world for a long time, and now clearly something is... That whole, that whole endeavor is falling apart. And so there's been this, this scramble to try to find out how, how we could even talk about it. You see, the problem with modern, when you think of modern as, as a synonym for whatever is the latest, it puts you in a bind because suddenly that thing which you thought was simply the, 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 you know, the eternal progress, progression of things and the modern was always going to suddenly it begins to fall apart. You have to find, how can you talk about this? So the, the term that has, that has been often used is postmodern, which uh, one wonders, you know, when the first phase of postmodernity collapses, what shall we call it then? You know, post-postmodernity, <laughs> what are we going to do, you see? Uh, the fact that we don't know how to talk about these things is a symptom of how, of how fundamental they are and how they challenge some of the most, some of the most uh, widely and deeply held presuppositions about what's going on. So 
what is modernity? Well, to some extent, modernity is a is a re- replay of some of the crises of the first century. I think some of the, some people who've made this observation have have been very insightful. Uh, the first century in the first in the, the church in the first century, the big struggle at the end of the first century was to what extent uh, can the religious and cultural tradition out of which Christianity emerged, namely Judaism, to what extent can an alliance with that with with that be part of the revelation itself, the ongoing revelation? Uh, and I think there's a there's a a kind of replica of that same uh, uh, question in in our time. Modernity is the name we have given to the age whose distinguishing feature is that the compromise between the Christian revelation and conventional culture and its standard psychosocial arrangements has been breaking down. For the church in the first century, anthropology had not been invented yet. The Christian revelation had to be around for a while before anthropology could be invented. Anthropology is the study of culture by people who are not entirely caught within one. And the Christian revelation had to run its course for a while before it produced some people that weren't caught within one. And then we could invent anthropology. But there wasn't anthropology in the first century. So uh, the question was not whether, to what extent the, the Christian revelation was in tension with any cultural arrangement. It was to what extent is it in tension with the Jewish cultural arrangement, which was the one most similar to it, you see. Uh, but now we can see that the question is is much broader. It's it's a question of conventional cultural arrangements versus the the revelation that uh, that calls these things into question. What today passes for late or post modernity is the collapse of the Enlightenment project. As the collapse proceeds apace, the fundamental question latent in Western civilization reasserts itself. And I would put it this way still trying to use the vine and branches metaphor. Will we follow the admonitions of Nietzsche and Heidegger and their contemporary representatives and revert to the old vine which the New Testament declared to be barren? And I haven't, I mentioned Nietzsche and Heidegger here out out of the blue, so to speak, but I'll come back to them in, in a few minutes. Or... Will we acquire the anthropological and ontological sensibilities with the help of which we might be able not only to appreciate the relevance of such things as the vine and branch of discourse, but to have the reality to which it points become a vital and vitalizing fact in our lives? That's that's basically where I want to start. We are in a world where the old synthesis, uh, as Dupuy says in his book, the old ontological synthesis, uh, the old uh, compromise between conventional culture and the biblical or Christian revelation is falling apart. And the last, the last hope of keeping it together, the Enlightenment hope, which was, to, um, which was to put the biblical aspect of it in the closet and to, and to uh, present it more or less as the continuation of a Greco-Roman a rationalistic uh, kind of uh, undertaking. That's falling apart. And so the question is, 
where are we going to go from here? Uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I, I used, again, a, uh, a kind of too, too simplistic, no doubt, but the idea of turning back toward the impulse to turn back towards the old sacred system in some way, to revive the old sacred system, or to fall into uh, the, the abyss of postmodern nihilism. And the fact is, of course, that postmodern nihilism at the bottom of that abyss is, a, is, a, is an old-fashioned resacralizing project as well. It's a pagan resacralization. So that's where I want to start this morning. And I want to do what I usually do, which is look at the, the cultural and anthropological question and then move down a notch and see the spiritual and ontological question and then finally come to what the, what the Christian revelation, the New Testament, uh, has to offer us as alternatives to the crisis that uh, is, is upon us. I want to go back to, to some, I think, incredibly powerful and insightful comments that uh, Romano Guardini made in, in lectures he gave in the 40s. And I quoted these last <clears throat> last year sometime in another series. Uh, but here's what he said. He, this is in a series of lectures entitled The End of the Modern World. And uh, Guardini said, The coming era will bring a frightful yet salutary preciseness to the conditions that have preceded it and that were, that were fermenting in... Uh, in the 30s and 40s. And he goes on to say, as the benefits of revelation disappear even more from the coming world, man will truly learn what it means to be cut off from revelation. In other words, the Enlightenment project will succeed to some alarming extent, and we will find, even though, by the way, you understand, I, I'm kind of a fan of the Enlightenment. That is to say, so that is no doubt we will all be nostalgic for it. If things continue to slide in the direction they're going, which is the revival of the primitive sacred on one hand and the descent into postmodern nihilism on the other, we will all be nostalgic for the Enlightenment because whatever its shortcomings, and there are lots of them, it was at least the Christian ethos that the Enlightenment was trying almost against its own impulses, to secularize and franchise to the world. So that we, we shouldn't be too judgmental and critical about the Enlightenment project. Perhaps it was the, the gospel's only way of working its way into the, into the modern world. We don't know. God works in mysterious ways. But the point is, it's now collapsing. The problem, of course, with the Enlightenment was that it chose to do that with little or no reference to the Christian revelation. It chose to do it as a secular operation. And its, and its attempt to cut itself off from the biblical revelation has, has succeeded in many ways. And to that extent, it is dying. I think I quoted... See, I'm just a bunch of quotes. That's what a florilegia is. It's a, it's a series of quotations. Nothing original here, folks. I promise you, nothing original. Uh, Lesek Kolakowski, the social scientist at uh, Chicago, who's very insightful, really insightful, uh, he said in that 
thing I shared with you a couple weeks ago, that um, as the Enlightenment project succeeded in cutting itself off from the biblical uh, tradition, it it greeted the the fact that it had succeeded in cutting itself off from the biblical tradition gleefully, and as it did so, it destroyed itself. And that's, I think, true. Okay, Guardini is commenting on this same historical, spiritual, anthropological shift. And he says, quote, The rapid advance of a non-Christian ethos will be crucial for the Christian sensibility. As unbelievers deny revelation more decisively, as they put their denial into more consistent practice, it will become the more evident what it really means to be a Christian. That's If you wonder in 10, 15, 20 minutes what I'm doing here this morning, is I'm trying to follow up on that sentence. Here it is again. As unbelievers deny revelation more decisively, as they put their denial into more consistent practice, it will become the more evident what it really means to be a Christian. And then Guardini goes on to say, at the same time, the unbeliever will emerge from the fogs of secularism. He will cease to reap benefit from the values and forces developed by the very revelation he denies. See, that's been the modern trick is, uh, you know, uh, Richard Wilbur is a wonderful poet. Richard Wilbur has that poem which says... uh, we milk the cow of the world and as we do, we whisper in her ear, you are not true. <laughs> That's what we've done with the Christian revelation, you see. That's exactly the point. And what uh, Guardini is saying is that, that now the game is up and uh, we're going to find out what it means to live without it. And then again, Guardini goes on, he must, the, the unbeliever who's now, uh, who's now really having to live without benefit of this revelation, he must learn to exist honestly without Christ and without the God revealed through him. He will have to learn to experience what this honesty means. Nietzsche has already warned us that the non-Christian of the modern world had no realization of what it truly meant to be without Christ. The last decades, and Guardini is, is giving these lectures in the, in the 40s, so the last decades of the 30s and the 40s, the last decades have suggested what life without Christ really is, and the last decades were only the beginning, end quote. That's pretty, that's pretty alarming. But all you have to do is pick up the paper and look around and you see uh, what he's talking about. Now, I, I want to stay with the anthropological and cultural for a while before raising spiritual and, and ontological questions about it. But while we're at it, here's one from René Girard, and I'll come back to it later. And I think it fits here exactly. Girard says, quote, The mind falls first into the stable disequilibrium of a false rationality and then into the unstable disequilibrium that leads to delirium. And to me, the stable disequilibrium of a false rationality is the Enlightenment. And the unstable disequilibrium that leads to delirium is postmodern nihilism. Or, in another twist, the revival of the primitive sacred. 
what we in general call fundamentalism, although I think we use that term too clumsily. Still and all, um, that, that's a phenomenon in our world. And in fact, I want to turn to that. I want to begin with that because everybody under the sun has made the observation that the worldwide revival of fundamentalism is, a, an, is an important symptom of something in our world. The intellectuals in the Western world have all the answers for that and they wring their hands and they see it as some dire thing. And it is some dire. I mean, I think in the, there's some, something very valid about seeing the rise of fundamentalism as a dangerous thing. However, I'm not myself one uh, who is willing to throw it all into one basket, although I, painting with such, as broad a brush as I do here, I can't hold others uh, you know, to the task of being more finely tuned. But I think when, I think when we say fundamentalism, what we really mean is the revival of the primitive sacred. And if, we, and if we talk of fundamentalism just as fundamentalism, I, I don't think it's, it's clear enough because there are what, for sort of liberal Protestants and Catholics, let's say, uh, would be regarded as fundamentalism, which is really not the revival of the primitive sacred. And it may not be to our, it may not suit us intellectually or in terms of our religious predilections, but it's not the revival of primitive sacred. When it's the revival of primitive sacred, we ought to recognize it as such, regardless of whether it's receiving Christian, Jewish, Islamic, uh, or, by the way, uh, pagan uh, validation. The, the, the one fundamentalism that most of the intellectuals don't see is pagan fundamentalism. There's plenty of that going on. So the point is to think about fundamentalism just for a second, but not fundamentalism in the general sense, but the revival of the primitive sacred. Now, what I want to do is last week I, I took Gaza as a locale, and I talked about two events that had to do with Gaza. One was a contemporary event, namely a suicide bombing that took place there a couple weeks ago, Islamic extremist bombing uh, a, a cafe with, uh, with Israeli soldiers in it. And the story of Samson, which is also a story in Gaza, and it's a story of essentially a suicide bomber. I mean, it's, it ha it's the same motif. And so I tried to bring those two stories together and talk about uh, them, uh, contrast them and talk about that issue. And I want to do the same thing today uh, the locale for t this week's version of that is Damascus, uh, but it's really still the same issue. It's still the same issue, the issue of sacred violence and its, uh, its place at the heart of the old sacred system. And so any revival of the old sacred system will be an attempt to revive and give re uh, religious sanction to some kind of sacred violence. Well, obviously, the one Damascus uh, event, or certainly an event that happened near 
Damascus that's important in this regard is the conversion of Paul. Because Paul was a zealot, Paul was uh, out performing acts of sacred violence, uh, either direct or indirect. He watched Stephen stoned to death by the crowd and he approved of it. Or Luke tells us that Saul, before he was conversion, was breathing threats and murder against the disciples. So he says he was a he was a, a, a sacred executioner. He was one of those. And on his way to Damascus to carry out more of these programs, he had this had this conversion experience. And he the voice of Jesus called him a persecutor and said, You are persecuting me and so on, his conversion began. And this is what Paul is the one who saw so clearly because of his own background that what was, that what the cross did is reveal and destroy that whole system. So, okay, that happened near Damascus. The other thing that happened near D Damascus is that the mastermind or one of the key masterminds of the... Uh, of the suicide bombing raids uh, on the part of Islamic uh, radicals <coughs> is near Damascus and uh, he was interviewed this week in Time magazine. Now, I, I'm proud to tell you I don't have a subscription to Time magazine, <laughs> but I, it's on my online service, you know, so there it is, the Time magazine logo and I click on it and it's the, sometimes it's my undoing. I want to apologize to you for bringing some of these things, but uh, in this case, I, I th thought it best not to read this, but I went ahead and read it anyway. And I'm not going to get into it. I'm just going to tell you this man was interviewed, and uh, he, during the interview, he uh, was laughing and grinning and chuckling about these suicide bombings that were taking place. And uh, he was asked, if uh, if he knew these people and he said well yeah we we know them and how is it how are these things carried out and well they're carried out carefully and so on these two men knew each other and he talks about how this bombing took place the suicide bombing took place now the question came up uh, did you know the bombers and he said oh yeah i knew them i knew one of them at least and this is what he says, quote, When he was a boy, he used to come to my home in the Gaza Strip. His older brothers were in the nucleus of the movement. But I myself did not choose the bombers. This was the work of our military branch. Some of the youths insist they want to lead suicide operations, perhaps because they're influenced by the teachings of Islamic Jihad. My orders are to persuade them not to go, to test them. But if they still insist, they are chosen, end quote. Well, it's a form of child sacrifice. It's a form of human sacrifice, let's say. Now, the human sacrificiality of it doesn't end with the bombers because other people were killed, but it's sacred violence. Uh, it's violence that is given ultimate sacred status. These people go straight to, to paradise and so on. Now, I'm not doing this in order to scapegoat the Islamic tradition. By the way, the vast majority of Muslims are offended by this. You see what I'm saying? So we're not we're not scapegoating Muslims. The vast majority of Muslims are 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 moral, upright, decent, faithful, God-loving people, just like the rest of us. But there is a revival of sacred violence here, 
and we have to I just I, I want to go to it because you almost have to go outside the Western orbit in order to get a look at the real thing you can I think I fear before too long we'll be able to get a look at the real thing inside the Western orbit but it will be the Dionysian version inside the Western orbit you can't get a religious a conventional religious version and that's what Nietzsche understood so well you will never be able to revive uh, a biblical version of the old sacred system. You see? It'll, have to, it'll have to come from outside the biblical arena altogether. And that's why you can't see... I mean, that's not to say there aren't some crazies out there who think of themselves as Christians and Jews uh, who are certainly willing to do this. I mean, we did have the, we did have the slaughter in, in, by, the, by this doctor, what's his name, in, uh, in Israel... Um, at the at the tomb of the patriarchs a year or two ago. So, there, but there's all kind there's things like that all all around. But in order to in order to see a really organized, systematic version of it, one almost has to go outside the Western tradition. Now, that doesn't mean that we're better than they are. It's just that uh, we that that our our cultural uh, environment has been so saturated by the biblical sensibility that it's very hard to revive uh, some form of that here. Okay. But we have to see it for what it is. At the end of that uh, interview, Time Magazine interview with uh, this man, who this man is, a, is someone who choreographs these suicide bombings and is very proud of the fact that he does. At the end of the interview, the Time Magazine correspondent said, it seems that these things give you satisfaction. And he said, it gives satisfaction to our people. Now, I just want to... That's the end of the Time Magazine interview, and I want to just keep the word satisfaction in mind. There are several words I want to keep in play here this morning because we'll, we'll hear them echoed or some version of them echoed. And as we do, I want to see if we can't orient ourselves in terms of a larger cultural and spiritual dynamic and begin to feel uh, where we are in that, uh, in that larger scheme of things. Well, the first thing I would say to to uh, the man being interviewed by Time Magazine, who was uh, very much in favor of these suicide bombings and chuckling about uh, their effectiveness and uh, and uh, smiling with a wry and wistful smile uh, on occasions during the, a sort of a winking approach to this with the with the Western journalists. The first thing one has to say is that uh, I don't think he realizes that the Western journalist is carrying a virus that is part of the, has its roots in the biblical tradition. And that may seem like no threat at all to this powerful revival of the primitive sacred, but I think history has shown that it is a threat that that journalist who himself or herself has no conscious uh, realization that the virus he or she is carrying is a biblical one, nevertheless is performing this kind of outreach, the revelation that goes out in concern for the victim, in, in uh, scrutiny of the myths that justify the victimization, that is implicit in Western journalism. And so I would say when you... When, these, you know, when uh, the, 
during the peak of the Hitler thing, they were they were making films of this thing. They were very pleased and proud of this wonderful thing they were doing for Europe, which is, you know, getting rid of the Jews and so on. I mean, it was it was no sense that uh, it's it's possible for somebody to look in, not not contaminated by that myth, and see the horror. And there's a little bit of that going on here. I remember because I, it was something I worked with for quite a while in the book, and that is the 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 Captain Cook story in Tahiti. He goes to Tahiti and they're performing a human sacrifice. And the chief, they go through the ritual and then the chief goes up to Captain Cook and says, how'd you like it? Thinking all the while that Captain Cook's going to say, hey, that was quite something. And Captain Cook just blasted him. He said, look, it, you can't do that. Of course, Captain Cook had his own version. He said, if you did that in London, we'd hang you, which is <laughs> the London version of the same thing. But the point is, the point is that uh, that there is that there is another power going on and it's it's not in many places it's not recognizably biblical anymore but nevertheless it's powerful and the next story i want to go to is is a, is a story of how it works so the first one was what a grim form of the revival of primitive sacred looks like it looks like sacred violence naked sacred violence like Suicide bombings. Here's another story. Now, what I have here really is two stories, uh, both from the same source, from the San Francisco Examiner last Sunday. These two stories were in the newspaper two pages apart, and I want to contrast them because now we're moving back into the Western uh, orbit, and I want to see two things going on in the Western orbit. We had to go outside the Western orbit to see a very glaring example of the revival of primitive sacred. But now let's come inside the Western orbit and see the struggle going on inside the Western orbit at the end of the Enlightenment, at the collapse of the Enlightenment. The first story is entitled Rewriting Israel's Past. Perhaps you saw it. Subtitle is Revisionist Rebellion Reveals the Shocking Truth Behind the Myths of Zionist Pioneers. So, here's the story. The story is that the, the archives that had the documents and documentation of, of that, the, to the background of what went on during the War of Independence and just afterward, those things were, were sealed for 30 years. So the archive was only open in 1988, and as soon as it was opened, of course, the journalist uh, plunged in and began to sort through these documents, and the books began to come out two or three years later, and now the books and commentaries and the arguments and so on and so forth, and the whole thing is coming out. Now, what's important here, we keep your eye on the ball, what's important here is not that the that the, the generative process that gave rise to the state of Israel was one in which the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism was at work. That is not surprising at all. That is, that, that's absolutely par for the course. What's interesting is that there's this there's this determination to go back 
and deconstruct the myth and see what actually happened. And that's quintessentially biblical. So most people might read this story thinking, oh, yeah, Israel's just as bad as everybody else. Well, you know, original sin. We know that already. What's interesting about this story is that it's a biblical story. It's a story about how the Bible works. The Bible doesn't work by, by uh, founding new nation states. You know. The Bible's not interested in real estate. It's not interested in power and air forces and armies. It's interested in truth. And so when you read this story, we shouldn't look down our noses at the, at the, at the, at the Jews of 30, 40 years ago and say, well, they were just as bad as everybody else. We should say, look at what's happening. They're not, they're not trying to continue a sacralization process. The biblical uh, ferment is working here. So here's the parts of the story. Quote, the revisionist movement has turned up intense controversy in a country still open to conflict with many of its Arab neighbors and in a citizenry bred to believe in the noble sentiments driving its cause. Almost no sacred cow has been left untouched. Now, just compare that in your mind to the, to the, to the interview with the Islamic uh, radical. I'm not trying to set up some religious thing. It's not religious because there are Jew, Jewish and Christian versions of his operation as well. But the point is, one is resacralizing violence and the other is desacralizing it. The other is demythologizing it. And this is, I mean, that's what we have to see and not see it simply in terms of some kind of religious food fight. It's an anthropological development, you see. And one is the, the reflex to resacralize because, because why? This is, goes back to why, do we, why is there this fundamentalism, worldwide fundamentalism? It's the sense that the source of our social and psychological lives is being is being washed away and it's true it's true and if you want to go to a text that understands that it's the new testament the new testament says in a sense it's going to be washed away you better get your feet on something more substantial because if you stand in that old uh structure you you will you will be washed away with it and so there you have anyway so so I just want to celebrate what this article means. It goes on, Almost no sacred cow has been left untouched. Neither the Zionist claims of Palestinian flight during Israel's 1948 War of Independence, nor the ecological value of grandiose infrastructure projects, nor the Israeli offer of refuge to post-World War II Holocaust victims. And then they quote a journalist, Benny Morris, who's written a book on, on uh, that era. And, and I thought his observation, the quote from him was quite powerful. He says, quote, I had grown up with what teachers had told me here. And then suddenly, as he reviewed the, the, the documents when the archives were open, he said, then suddenly I was seeing documents like the one signed by the young Yitzhak Rabin ordering a Jewish brigade in the War of Independence to kick out the Arab populations of Lida without regard for age or gender. My eyes were opened, end quote. Now, you know, I always go back to this. The, word, the root word for myth is mu, which means to close the eyes and close the mouth. And what did he discover? He discovered at the heart of his own culture's 
generative experience, scapegoating. That's what that is. He saw this order to kick the population out, and he said, my eyes were opened. Now, he's he's having Paul's experience. He's having a version of Paul's experience, as we all should be, because it's true of all of us. Another journalist, uh, whose name is Tom Segev, writes another thing, and they quote him. He says, until a few years ago, the country didn't have historiography. It had mythology. Whatever was written was designed to give moral and ideological foundations to the political activity of the state. That's absolutely par for the course. There's nothing unique about that. That's the way it's always been. What's unique is somebody deciding there's something wrong with that. Somebody who's saying, we, we need historiography. What is historiography? In the Western sense, historiography is always looking back. And it's a moral, it's a moral undertaking. You see, his, his, history writing in the ancient Greco-Roman sense is just a catalog of the victories and defeats and so on and so forth. But in the, in the biblical sense, historiography is a moral undertaking. Let's look back at this and see, get to the truth, find out what really happened. Anyway, so then Segev says, the country is ready to re-examine old myths and there is a new generation of young people to do this, end quote. Now, Keep in mind this phrase, new generation, because in many ways it's a Pauline phrase. It's, it's, it's also a synoptic phrase. New generation is like the, the new anthropos, the new humanity that Paul talks about. Now, the question about new generation is, will it really be a new generation in the generative sense? What, what our world is desperately in need of is a new generation, not just the next one, younger people, but a new form of the generative event, you see. And this, I think, is, is what Christianity is all about. Not that we've been ever, ever been very good at it. But when Paul talks, and the synoptics, but Paul especially, talks about the, the communion, the, the community that comes together, the agapeic community that comes together in identification with the lamb slain and so on, you get another kind of generation, another kind of social generation. I don't want to talk that to death right now, but I just want to point out something that's probably obvious, and that is that here you have a new generation, and what is this new generation doing? It's condemning its predecessor generation. Well, that's easy, and we all do it. It all has to. It has to be done. It's a task. We have to do it. Jesus says, "Your fathers murdered the prophets." and you decorate their tombs. You don't realize you're doing the same thing they were doing. You think you're, you're morally superior because you're, you condemn your fathers for murdering the prophets. You garnish their tombs, but all you're doing is the same thing. You're scapegoating your fathers. Your father scapegoated the prophets. You haven't done anything. So this is, you just change the focus slightly, and you're still doing the same thing. The, the, the challenge is to be part of a new generation, to generate... To, to experience a social generation that's not dependent on that kind of scapegoating thing. So anyway, I, I mention that because uh, 
because the question of new generation will come up again here in just a second. The article ends with a, a quotation by a more a traditional scholar. These two men I quoted from here are part of this revisionist uh, movement to take a very critical look at the at the early days of, of uh, the formation of the State of Israel. This is a more, much more traditional scholar uh, whose name is Yehoshua Porath, and he teaches at Hebrew University. He's a historian. And what he said, he agrees with them more or less. And what he says is, quote, you can't build a cultural heritage on a lie because when young people discover the truth, they can become cynical, end quote. Well, that's true. You see, you can't make the lie stick, is what he's saying. And he's talking within <coughs> this context, which is the demythologized world that the biblical revelation has brought about. In a conventional world, go back or go outside of the influence of this biblical revelation. You, you can build a, build a cultural heritage on a lie. People have been doing it since the dawn of human culture. You know, the lie is that that was a monster we killed. You see, the lie is that this is our land. God gave it to us. The lie is, etc., etc., etc. You very, you very definitely can build a culture on a lie. You just can't do it anymore because the demythologizing virus has been let loose on the world. And so people discover the truth and they become cynical, which is to say they become modern skeptics, and so on. Anyway, before we get lost in all this, I want to compare these two stories that were two pages apart in the paper. This is absolutely uh, amazing in a way that they were. The second story is entitled Germany's 89ers, New Generation of Right-Wingers. Now, Remember the phrase, new generation? Tom Segev said, there's a new generation in Israel, and it's determined to get at the truth, to shatter these myths, and to get at the truth, and to recognize, as, as the other journalist said, my eyes were opened when I saw that there was this scapegoating mechanism at the origin of my own culture's uh, historical life. The 89ers are a new generation in Germany. Subtitle of the article is 18 to 28-year-old, quote, intellectuals seek national identity that rejects post-war liberal ideals. It's an article by uh, Dennis Stanton of the London Observer, and it begins this way. Fresh-faced and smartly dressed, they huddle in bars and cafes and on university campuses, heads tilted conspiratorially and brows twisted in earnest frowns as they talk about history, philosophy, and the state of Germany. They carried books by Ernst Junger, Karl Schmidt, and Martin Heidegger, philosophers associated with Nazi thinking, or by Ernst Nolte, the controversial revisionist historian who insists the Holocaust must be viewed as a reaction to Bolshevik crimes. This is Germany's new generation of intellectuals. Young, ambitious, right-wing, 
and fueled by a commitment to restoring a strong and clearly defined national identity to Germany. Okay, two pages away from this one in Israel. Now, you see the contrast here? You see what's going on? And the reason I'm bringing it is not to set up some kind of little, uh, you know, dichotomy between these two, but to see that these are the two paths open to us. Now, the revival of primitive sacred cannot take place in terms of the dominant religious tradition in the West. It's not going to take place in terms of Judaism or Christianity because Judaism and Christianity are too shot through with things that are antithetical to it. So if it's going to take place, it's going to have to take place, and this is what Nietzsche saw so clearly, it's going to have to take place in terms of a, a revival of some kind of vague religiosity that is outside the biblical orbit altogether. So anyway, I'm just trying to put these things in perspective. The next paragraph explains the name of this generation, the, the name it's taken. It says, quote, They're known as 89ers, the wave of peaceful revolutions of 1989 being the formative event of their lives. Their enemies are the 68ers. <laughs> their enemies are the 68ers whose roots lie in the student rebellion of, the of 1968 and who helped to create the liberal consensus that has dominated German public life for 25 years. The 68ers, in a sense, carried the Enlightenment project to its natural conclusion. Uh, they, we, uh, insisted on a universality, uh, insisted on a liberation, a movement of liberation, insisted on deconstructing the national myths, insisted on be, becoming concerned about those left out, you know, the third world, the people that were, that, that were crushed underfoot in terms of this, that, or the other empire. You see, that, well, those were the 68ers. And they were deconstructing all the myths, except their own, of course, our own, which was another version of scapegoating the fathers and so on. And it gave rise to, it had its own sacred violence and so on. So I'm not saying it was any fundamental break. Uh, but the point is, the children of the 68ers are now the 89ers and they want to go back and they're walking around with uh, Carl Schmidt and Martin Heidegger and Frederick Nietzsche under their arms trying to work out a formula for reviving what, what they think of as German identity. I wonder how they're going to revive it, don't you? How might it be revived? Surely it won't look anything like others' revivals, will it? Well, let's read on in the article and see. First of all, there's something which is quite interesting, I think, and it's this. You, if you start an article like this, you think, well, you, you check your watch and you say, when are they going to get to Nietzsche? Well, it was in about paragraph five. Quote, Frederick Nietzsche unfairly stigmatized after World War II as Hitler's favorite philosopher. Let me just deal with that, uh, that parenthetical remark, first of all. It's true that Nietzsche was unfairly stigmatized as Hitler's favorite philosopher. It's also true that he was Hitler's favorite philosopher. It's also true that there was good reason for that. So anyway, he's unfairly stigmatized, but not entirely unfairly. 
Anyway, it says, Frederick Nietzsche is at the center of a heated intellectual tussle as right-wingers seek to reclaim him from left-wing postmodernists who have adopted him in recent years. End quote. I think this is delicious. This is absolutely delicious. Everybody, everybody knows what Nietzsche taught them, and that is the only alternative to Christ is Dionysus. And now the left and the right both want to claim Nietzsche, to be able to march in that direction, you see. I think this is really amazing. It's really amazing. Um, and they will both, no doubt, come up with a Nietzsche that fits. You see, because Nietzsche was, so, Nietzsche was an absolute genius, mad genius, but he was absolutely right. And that is that the old left-right thing is ridiculous. It does, that's not the issue, you see? And it's, it couldn't be, the proof of it couldn't be clearer than right here. They both come to, Nietzsche says, it's Dionysus or Christ. He's, he's dispensing with the kind of tension that, that turned the, the historical machinery in the Western world for the last several hundred years. He's just writing it off as irrelevant. And here's a classic example. The, the, the Enlightenment categories collapse. Ultimately, it's Dionysus or Christ. And the, two, the right-wingers and the left-wingers both want their Nietzsche because he's the lifeline. He, he's the, he's their, their life support system. Well, let's do it this way. He's the, he's the vine on which they're the branches and uh, the vine dresser is the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning, Dionysus. There you have it. And they, they, they want to have that pedigree. Well, okay, so let me now carry on because the question is, uh, how is this new generation going to revive national identity in Germany? One of the literary figures involved in this new movement is a playwright whose name is Botho Strauss, uh, who's written about the eclipse of liberal values by the new nationalist fervor. And the article says, quote, Writers such as Strauss have begun to identify themselves openly with the right and to reject, quote, the constitutional patriotism of the post-war years, whereby Germans were encouraged to express loyalty to democratic values rather than to a nation. Now, you see, that, that's the universalizing impulse. You see, we can't be just narrow nationalist anymore because the na nationalism was a, was a f sacred myth that was brought... You know, nationalism is a very recent event in world history. I mean, it's only 200 years, 150 years old. You know, nationalism as we know it. And I think it came into history at exactly the moment when it was no longer possible to have uh, Christian sacred violence. You had to have some kind, something around which to sacralize uh, the, the cultural uh, project or enterprise. And, and you couldn't use any of the religious apparatus anymore explicitly. You could keep it there. You, know, you, could, have the, you could have the bishop sprinkling holy water on the troops as they went off to war or something, but you couldn't have that at the 
as the banner, the overall banner. And so we, we had nationalism. I mean, there are lots of ex there's lots of ways of trying to understand the development of nationalism, but the point is it's, it's, it, it's now in issue again. And uh, the question is, can we have it? Well, there are lots of people, lots of places where it's trying to be, you know, efforts to revive it are underway. Pretty impressive efforts. But um, I don't think they're going to work. Any, anyway, here's one of them. And they want to go back to that. So the article goes on. This is where it gets really illuminating. Quote, Strauss caused a furor last year when he published an essay in the newspaper Der Spiegel in which he seemed to hint that right-wing attacks on foreigners had a ritualistic quality and that they could serve as a cleansing process for society. Huh? Now, think about that. Well, next sentence. Strauss's poetic style is so opaque that nobody could be certain of precisely what he meant. And most observers were willing to grant him the benefit of the doubt. I want to come back to that because, boy, that is... You know, early in the article it talked about Nietzsche and Heidegger and so on. You talk about... I mean, that was... that was Nietzsche philosophized with a hammer precisely. I mean, Nietzsche's philosophizing with a hammer has precisely that effect. It's so aphoristic... The sparks fly off in all directions, and if you're dry tender, you get set on fire. But nobody can trace it, you know. It doesn't leave a paper trail in the sense. It's a, it's a kind of, it's a kind of post-mythological myth. It's a way of creating the mythic justification in a rational discourse, semi, you know, quote unquote, rational discourse that has myth, it has a kind of mythological effect. Because it's not quite explicit, and it's not myth. You see, I'll come back to that. I just think it's pretty amazing. And Heidegger is the world champion. Heidegger is the world champion, and that's why people read Heidegger and they think just about anything they want to think. <laughs> uh, okay, so the article says that uh, Chancellor Helmut Kohl remains a committed European internationalist, but is most likely most likely successor, Wolfgang Schabel, wrote a book uh, earlier this year in which he advocated using, quote, the emotional connective power of national identity to unite Germans, end quote. The emotional connective power of national identity. We know, and uh, René Girard has filled in a lot of the details about the emotional connective power, where that power comes from and what's at the center of it. And, uh, and this playwright, whose name is Strauss, he knows too because he's already talking about attacks on foreigners having a ritualistic quality uh, that might serve as a cleansing process for society. What, it, what has a ritualistic quality that serves as a cleansing process? It's, the, it's Leviticus 16. You take the sins of the people, you put it on the scapegoat, and you run them out of town. It's the old system, you see. Okay, well, let's stop a second, look back before we go forward. There's been reference here to new generation. 
as a new generation of Islamic ideologues who have revived the ancient notion of suicide attacks. It's not unique to Islam, as I showed last week with the story of Samson. There's a new generation of Israeli journalists who are trying to puncture the myth in their society. There's a new generation of Neo-Nietzscheans in Germany that are trying to revive the myth. All of these are symptoms of our time. So what I did is I started outside the Western purview in the Islamic tradition. Then I moved inside the Western purview and took a look at two contrasting uh, scenes, one in Israel where the myth is being deconstructed and one in Germany where it's being revived. And now we have to move a little closer to home, into our society. And what I want to do is take a look at the postmodern tendrils of the vine in whose tangles many young people in our society are as caught as are the fervent zealots and the new Nietzscheans that we've looked at uh, so far. I, I said earlier that I think Nietzsche was right, that if there's going to be a revival of the old sacred system inside the Western world, it will have to, two things will have to take place. First of all, Christianity will have to be unplugged in terms of its, uh, its uh, historical effectiveness. It will somehow have to be marginalized, and that has been taking place. I don't think it's worked, to be honest with you, but when you, when you read that 4% of the French who declare themselves to be Christian go to church every week or something like that, I forget what it is, but pretty amazing, uh, and some other things. Now, the truth is that, uh, that Christian church attendance, by the way, is not a terribly accurate measure of things, <laughs> one has to admit. On the other hand, it is a measure of something because uh, Christianity is, in fact, a communal uh, thing, and to, the idea that I'll go be a Christian all by myself and not bother with anybody else it's never been done very well, and I don't think it's going to be done very well. So it's not a terrible church attendance. Maybe not a terribly accurate measure of things. On the other hand, it is a measure of something. Um, so we could say that uh, Christianity, and for to some extent because of its own failings, has uh, has been marginalized. Nevertheless, the point I'm trying to make is that I think Nietzsche understood it that it has to be that aspersions have to be cast on Christianity so that it becomes marginalized enough so that people fall out of its, its influence or fall out to the edges of its influence. And there at those edges, perhaps a revival of some kind of a sacred system can take place, but it'll have to take place in terms of Dionysus and not Christ. In other words, it'll have to be a revival of something completely outside the biblical orbit. We won't be able to to give a Judeo-Christian uh, imprint to any kind of sacred revival in the Western world. So the question is, is that revival taking place? Well, in Germany, it's taking place. Now, the, here you get into things like national character, whatever that means. I mean, uh, But th there is something to that. Uh, the, the, if the Germans are going to revive 
this sacred system. They're going to do it with Heidegger under their arm. You know what I mean? Would we Americans do it that way? No. You see, we're anti-intellectuals. We're, we're, uh, we're all in favor of immediate experience. And, and uh, so we would never do it in the, in the sort of philosophical way that the Germans would do it. But the question is, is it the same thing ultimately? And Nietzsche, who's the source of all of this, Nietzsche, who's the source of Heidegger and so on, he's, he's uh, at the heart of it, at the heart of both. He, he's the one who said Dionysus is the path we will have to take. Well, in Germany, they are reading books by Nietzsche and Heidegger and so on that are, that are underneath fundamentally drifting in the Dionysian direction. Here in this society, which is an anti-intellectual society, the young people, the new generation, not by any means all, but some, are beginning to experiment with the Dionysian in, in, a, in a noticeably American way. That is to say, skip the Nietzsche, skip the Heidegger, and get straight to the crazy frenzy. You know, crank up the rock and roll and see where it'll take us. Now, that's, so now I want to look at that. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the true vine, my father's the vine dresser, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me with me in him bears fruit in plenty. For cut off from me, you can do nothing. And these are the lines I want to emphasize here. Anyone who does not remain in me is like a branch that has been thrown away. He withers. And these branches are collected and thrown on the fire and they are burned. Now, compare that with the lines from Girard that I quoted earlier. Quote, The mind falls first into the stable disequilibrium of a false rationality. That's what I would call withering. That's that kind of arid rationality that leads to this itch for some kind of resacralizing. And then Girard says, the mind that has fallen into the stable disequilibrium of a false rationality thereafter falls into the unstable disequilibrium that leads to delirium. And, and compare that to uh, the branch cut off from this source, withering, and then being collected and thrown on the fire and burned. You see what I'm trying to say? Is that, is, that the, is that the alienation, the experience of alienation and uh, dreary meaninglessness makes dry tender out of all of us. And the itch to experience some kind of primitive religiosity uh, begins to arise. Well, the very last word in the, that passage in John 15 is that they are collected, thrown in the fire, and burned. Well, I now want to read you one more article. I think it's the last one. Uh, and it's entitled, the title of the article is Crash and Burn. So therein is the connection. I want to say to you, though, that this article... I feel a need to say this to you. This article was sent to me. I didn't look for it. 
I don't go out and do this. I try to stay. I told you about the, you know, Time Magazine is on my online service, and so sometimes I fall for it. But other than that, it's usually the New York Times, and I, I have to say, because I quoted from it, the, the, the uh, Sunday edition of the Examiner Chronicle. But other than that, I don't go out. Of, I don't look for these things, you know. This one was sent to me by a tape subscriber. Now, all my tape subscribers, you know, are... are, uh, are good and upright people. <laughs> this this particular tape subscriber is especially a good and upright person. And I would never mention his name because <laughs> you're gonna wonder why would why is Gil up there talking about such a scandalous thing, you know? But I just to to excuse myself I want to say it uh, it's I opened an envelope and there it was. With a note saying, I think this is just what you've been talking about. And so I want to bring it to you because the article is if if we analyze it with a kind of exegetical interest, you realize that this article has even phrases in it and insights in it that allow us to see what's going on. Okay, so uh, Jesus says, uh, let me just ring the changes on this thing one more time. Girard says, quote, the mind falls first into the stable disequilibrium of a false rationality, that's the enlightenment. And then into the unstable disequilibrium that leads to delirium. And Jesus says, anyone who does not remain in, in me is like a branch that has been thrown away and withers. That's the enlightenment. These branches are collected and thrown on the fire and they are burned. And that's the recyclization or postmodernity. Postmodernity, which, which is the prelude to a recyclizing crisis. I've said over and over again in the past that the, the thing we don't recognize, recognize about the Dionysian business is what, is, is what uh, Euripides made perfectly clear in the Bacchae, and that is that its first phase is carnivalesque and its next phase is sacrificial. So that it begins, when it begins, everybody thinks, oh, this is just, you know, this is just letting our hair down and this is just... Uh, you know, relaxing and enjoying ourselves and getting outside of the confines of, you know, civilization and its discontents or something like that. But then there's a moment when it turns and it starts to move into its sacrificial phase. It starts to move towards its violent denouement. And we have to see that in our world. So this article is is about that. It, it appeared in the January 18th edition of the San Francisco Bay Guardian, and it's entitled Crash and Burn. The subtitle is Crash Worships Rhapsodic Orgy of Noise, Fire, and Hot Maple Syrup. Crash Worship is the name of a rock group. Now, before we go on, we wouldn't even need to read this article. All we need to do is notice the name of the rock group. Crash Worship. I don't, I mean, there are lots of names of rock groups that uh, make, you, make, make it palpably clear that what we're dealing with is postmodern nihilism. But Crash Worship, as a name, makes it clear that not only are we dealing with postmodern nihilism, but that nihilism is a religious phenomenon, as I said last week, and that it's moving in the direction of a Dionysian crisis. Anyway... The opening sentences of the article are these, quote, 
Don't wear anything that you aren't ready to throw away, warned Crash Worship's publicist. Remember, you'll be in an enclosed area at the mercy of Crash Worship. End quote. Now, let me remind you of the opening lines of the story about the new generation in Germany, the 89ers with their Heidegger and Nietzsche. That story opened with the following, quote, fresh-faced and smartly dressed. They huddle in bars and cafes on university campuses, heads tilted conspiratorially and brows twisted in earnest frowns as they talk about history, philosophy, and the state of Germany. That's not how we do things, is it? No, no, no. Here's how we do it. Don't wear anything you're not ready to throw away. I think they're the same phenomenon, by the way. I think they're the same. The siren in the background, underscore. <laughs> right on cue. Right on cue. <laughs> okay, so here we have it. Since forming in San Diego in 1985, Crash Worship has become legendary for shows that are more like rhapsodic bacchanals than rock concerts. Bonfires proliferate and audience members are regularly doused with water, wine, chocolate, and other liquids to lubricate them as they writhe and roll. So this is the point at which rock and roll becomes writhe and roll. That's, you see, if we're just trying to take the temperature of this uh, phenomenon. But let me go on. Enthusiasts have been known to copulate in front of the stage. And one memorable New York performance included a bloodletting ceremony in which participants cut open their arms, drained them into cups, and drank the blood. This is why I had to blame this on the tape subscriber who sent it to me. I, I don't want to talk about these things. You know? And the, you know, and the people... Now, I, again, I don't want to... I, I, I don't want to be too... I don't want to set up the kind of thing that sometimes is set up, but remember in two things I would say at this point. One is, remember that uh, in the 20s and 30s, people in Germany, even Jews in Germany, said it couldn't be that bad. You know, it really couldn't be that bad. Well, let's not dwell on the negative, really, uh, because uh, it couldn't be that bad. So that's one thing to remember. And the other thing to remember, which maybe is a little more consoling, is that this is a marginal event in our culture. Now, it's probably not as marginal as you and I would like for it to be. This was a sold-out performance of 800 people. So one wonders, and that was the, that was the capacity of the, of the building. One wonders, had it been in a bigger building, how many might have attended. It was sold out. So it's not it's marginal, let's admit it. And it may remain marginal. I have a suspicion that it's going to be less so. Nevertheless, let's assume that it's totally marginal and remains marginal. It's still important because of what it tells us about what's going on. The question is not whether or not this is a, a bigger phenomenon than it is or whether it's going to get bigger. The question is whether it is symptomatic of the problem. And I think it 
is symptomatic of the problem. So understand, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, go out and get some weird little thing on the margins and uh, use it to scandalize us all. I'm looking for those things that tell us about what's going on. In the same way that the, the Israeli journalist determined to get to the truth, that says something about what's going on in our world. It says something very good about it. And we should see what it's saying about it. It's not, sa- it's not telling us a story about how bad Israel is. It's telling us a story about how alive the biblical uh, ferment is. And the story in Germany about the new generation and their and their Heideggerian uh, uh, interest and uh, the new nationalism that tells us something about what's going on in our world. And maybe nothing's going to come of it. Maybe Germany's going to go right along and be part of the European community the way it's always been. I hope so. Probably will be. The point is, does it tell us something? And it does. And in, in this country, does this kind of thing? And this is not just in this country, of course. This is worldwide. But the question is. Is, is there something illuminating about this story which doesn't have to do with how widespread this sort of thing is or even with whether it's going to become more widespread? So anyway, that's, that's the point. And, and I'm sorry about the bloodletting ceremony, but there you have it. What does that say? Okay, continuing with the story. To celebrate the release of their new album, Triple Mania 2, Crash Worship held a midnight show Friday the 13th in a cavernous warehouse space in San Francisco's Industrial District. For a sold-out crowd of 800 hardcore fans and voyeurs in search of a spectacle, end quote. Now there the word comes back in, doesn't it? Remember in, in Luke 23, the crowd that had come to watch the spectacle saw what happened and went home beating their breast. But what does that spectacle... What's, what is the, the search for a spectacle? You see, the spectacle brings the crowd together. It's that, it's that social glue. And the question is, what is the final act of that spectacle? And the final act Will be, of this kind of spectacle will be a sacrificial one. You can bet on it. You can bet on it. And the symptoms are everywhere. And, and it's not as though we just invented this. Euripides wrote about it 2,500 years ago. And it's everywhere in human history. 